here. My name is Jamie. I'm here with the Deering Banjo Company, and with me, as always, is the wonderful, delightful, fantastic David Bandrowski. <laughs> David, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. Good to be yeah. here. We do have fun, don't we? Oh, yeah. I love doing <laughs> these. This is, it's a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got some, uh, we've got a very cool guest here today. Uh, we're excited we're going to bring him in in just a minute. But before we do, I uh, just want to remind everybody of next week's guest, uh, the delightful Bibi Barnes will be with us. Um, Dave, you managed to catch up with her uh, at Rocky Grass weekend ago. Um, yeah. And very excited to have her on. I will not be here. I will be on vacation with my family. Um, so I'm leaving you in the capable hands of uh, David and Jonathan. Uh, you're in for a treat. Um, also want to give a, a big shout out to Jonathan today. Uh, anyone who appreciated the new intro and the graphics, uh, very cool. Thank you, my friend, finishing those off early this morning. Um, so uh, that, I hope that went well. Um, what else do we have? Uh, the, a couple more things. The, all the upcoming episodes um, are now up on the Deering Live page, uh, which is DeeringBanjos.com slash Deering Live. Um, and uh, you can tune in there to see all of the past episodes as well. Dave, what do you think? Should we get, a, get our guest in here? Yeah, let's bring him in. All right. So our guest today is, he's a true scholar of uh, American folk music. He's written the critically acclaimed book on American field recordings, The Beautiful Music All Around Us. He's a Grammy-nominated recording artist and is also a critically acclaimed playwright, most known for his one-hit show, uh, sorry, one-man uh, hit show, <laughs> Band Banjo Dancing. Thank you, Dave. As we found out right before we went live as well, he's also played and performed for presidents. So we'll learn about that. Uh, quote from the Washington Post that we found uh, that I have to repeat as well. Um, Among the enduring Washington institutions, the Lincoln Memorial, the White House, the inaugural parade, it will soon be necessary to include Stephen Wade. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Please welcome Mr. Stephen Wade. Stephen, how are you? Well, thank you very much, James. Thank you. You're very kind. Yeah. I wrote well, that from the heart. Oh, well. There we go. <laughs> how, how, where in the world are you? Remind everybody, uh, you're in... We live, uh, we live just outside Washington, D.C., my wife. Okay. And I, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I hope uh, everything is good and, and safe and well out there. So. Well, I wouldn't... There's a lot of trouble. We make trouble here in Washington. A lot of, yeah, yeah. Okay. I guess you know that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. But I think uh, we'll, we'll we'll get started, right? So let's let's oh. do the traditional daring live uh, etiquette um, and invite you to play a little tune. Edit your thing.
right. Now so that, great to have you here, Stephen. What was that? All right. Well, okay. What was that? That was Wild Horse or Stony Point or Buck Creek Gals or Wake Up Jacob, Pigtown Fling, Old Dad, Unfortunate Dog, Kelton's Reel. And when Earl Scruggs and Paul Warren played it together, they just called it Fiddle and Banjo. <laughs> and so, uh, so it's, it's a tune with many versions and many names and and many possibilities within it so how how why do you think so many you know so much folk music you know has multiple names for the same tune how does that well, come about? Because traditional music there's a shared artistic responsibility all these different there's this uh, common possession this and all these individual contributors. And mm -hmm. it's in that balance there. So these different players are bringing different interpretations. And, and in this case, uh, lots of names to identify th th those ways of thinking about that tune and, and approaching it. That's and that it kind of goes into a, a question I was gonna ask later, but as a good time now, how do you see like people that are um, you know, playing traditional music today. Um, a lot of times in traditional music, there's there's kind of a battle between, oh, you aren't doing it the way so-and-so did it versus, you know, maybe putting your own flavor into it. And where is that balance? Like you just mentioned, well, everybody, it's a, you know, it's a, there's these battles in traditional music. I'm sure you're familiar well, with. Well, I don't know. I My experience in music has always been with respect to apprenticeships really long often long as well as fleeting contacts and encounters long-term relationships with my teacher and my teacher's teacher so we had well the last this my teacher was named Fleming Brown and his teacher was named Doc Hopkins and Doc was from Harlan County Kentucky and came to Chicago in 1930 to sing on the National Barn Dance and uh, Doc taught Fleming beginning, uh, so Doc came there in 1930, Fleming, he started giving him lessons in 1948, and then I met Fleming in 1972, and then started playing as Doc's accompanist to the end of his life, and he, he actually outlived Fleming, so Fleming passed away in 1984, Doc in 1988, and the last time that Fleming and Doc and I were ever together, Fleming said something very poignant. He said, we are a family. A family is not necessarily just blood. And so there was a lot of care that they gave. They'd sometimes say, oh, you sound like a piano falling down a staircase and stuff like that. I mean, it was, you know, if it didn't sound right or good to them, or Doc would say, you've got, got that melody and that right. But at the same time, he said with melody, he said, you know, do your own, it's like an old pair of britches. He said, you put a new patch on it. So he, there was room there to do your own, um, bring your own ideas to something as well as what's inherited. So I, I don't know about really the sternness that I think that you're describing, although I can imagine it. I sort of steer clear, I think, of that. Many of the people, the older generation players that I was fortunate enough to meet, both black and white, m men and women, I guess the oldest of whom was born in the late 1880s, uh, there was usually a a great deal of warmth, uh, a happy 
to have visitors who cared. And uh, so I, 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 I don't think that this quite the same as chamber music, where there's perhaps something written that's fixed, where I, I, I'm sure there's people who have thoughts that it has to go one way or another, but I, 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 again, I, I, that's not a concern of mine. Um, I'm, I'm too busy trying to learn the melody as it is and play it. I, I, I tend to get involved in those, in those internecine warfare. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I hear you. I, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm, I agree with you. Um, I've had the same experience when, when, you know, playing traditional jazz here in new Orleans with, with older musicians, you know, they're very warm and open, um, yeah. to, uh, um, they're happy to, to that to share the music and share and share yeah. you know the art form with you. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I it's it is in just this collective experience of these songs and then all these different you know, uh, you know, individual contributors. As I said, that's an, an extraordinary thing. That's a different kind of creativity than. Um, one person's work alone and and at the same time these are all artists who have individual styles and voices and sounds that uh, uh that yeah. bear our attention demand our attention or, or or might compel our attention i guess to be the better way to say it well you brought up some of uh, your teachers this was in chicago when you first started learning uh yeah uh, uh, the banjo and, and folk music. I believe you started on playing playing blues guitar, though acoustic blues guitar. Was it? Yeah, yeah. My my guitar teacher is, is still alive. Jim Schwal of the Siegel Schwal Blues Band. He just just graduated from college, and he and Corky Siegel were in their very beginnings of their band of uh, of the Siegel Schwal Blues Band. And Corky and Jim were opening for many of the wonderful performers who had come up to Chicago during the Great Migration. The black performers from Arkansas, Mississippi, and uh, I could, they'd have matinees where, and I could, and sometimes they'd have the front door swung open, I could stand outside and listen to these saloons, and I couldn't go in, but that's how I got to see and meet some of these great players uh, that, you know, include Muddy Waters and Hal Wolf and, and Hubert Sumlin, and, and, and you know, when, when I was growing up, uh, Mahalia Jackson was still singing in churches in Chicago, so there was a great uh, presence for me. Uh, the music was part of a, a, a something I was sort of, a, I guess, alert to or aware of even younger than before I started playing. And that was uh, this idea that artists, wherever you find it, uh, I, in in the, my book, I, I, I open and the preface is the, you know, the story of the writer. The introduction is the story of the book, and in the preface, I talk about this experience. Is like kept having what seeing this one street performer in Chicago, a very beloved figure and, and generations of Chicagoans saw him for some 60 years. Uh, he was performing on the streets at this, um, he had these trained chickens and they were, he had said he had trained 218 chickens and they're all, all named Mae West. And uh, so he was, he'd, he'd be out there on the street and, you know, and doing this show with May and, uh, and, 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 you know, buses are driving by and car horses are, are, you know, blaring. And, and yet it was, it was theater of the purest sort and it was quite engaging. And so there's this presence of art and life that had just merged. And, uh, and I had a similar experience when watching those performers at those blues clubs, how the, I didn't 
obviously catch all the cultural references and songs, but the audience understood. And so there was something larger than just music that was being communicated. There was shared experience present. And so by the time I was a teenager and playing the five string band show, um, it started for me with in part both learning in person, which is the primary experience. But also uh, my teacher told me, said, you have to go and listen to the records that were uh, made by the uh, both the commercial recording companies in the 20s uh, and to the recordings made by the Library of Congress. And differently than the commercial studio recordings, these Library of Congress recordings, which are conceived in ethnography rather than commerce uh, are recorded in people's homes uh, or uh, churches or playgrounds and prisons and uh, these settings. So in the background, there's kitchen clocks ticking and dogs barking. And uh, sometimes the neighbor stops by and is talking while the person is, is playing the tune. And these records uh, look, look, this is what, this is what they look like. The, the set. So I, you couldn't really buy it. Well, you could buy them, but they weren't really that, well available. So there's one library, the Chicago Public Library, the main branch downtown, and uh, you could listen to them there. And so I did. And and I, I found it so beguiling the names and and uh, and that presence that it just hit me. And I didn't expect it that when I listened to those records, all of a sudden I remembered seeing Casey Jones on the streets of Chicago, that performer I told you about, the Chicken Man, who he also went by the name of a song, Casey Jones. He, he played a squeeze box accordion and sang that song and uh and those blues experiences and and church experiences i had witnessed uh as an 11 year old in chicago playing trying to learn the guitar and so that that all that came to it seemed like the same thing it was uh that uh inseparability uh, of art and life yeah yeah and and then you, you switched over to banjo and, and eventually started uh, teaching at the Old Town School of Folk Music, too, didn't you? Well, I, I did. I, I was learning from Fleming, and then he turned his class over to me. So he, okay. had, taught, he had taught there for 13 years, and then he gave it to me to teach. Um, you know, I wanted to – may I play something else? In, uh, yeah, please do. Uh, uh, it, it occurred to me that when you were going to ask about, about this sort of early beginning, I wanted to – this is a song I learned from Doc Hopkins, but I, I, uh, to that point of this sort of a presence of lived experience and, and music together, I wanted to play it on a fretless banjo. So this is a banjo that uh, was made in uh, Western North Carolina and around Beach Mountain. And this is the last banjo that Clifford Glenn of Sugar Grove, North Carolina had, had ever made, ever made. And, um, and uh, other banjos like this have so there's a possum skin for a head and and you can see that it's a has a great be beautiful simplicity in its design and uh i i thought this again goes to that idea it's sort of a piece of dra drain drain pipe kind of uh metal anodized uh in in there uh, i don't know if i can if i'm showing quite right but uh at any rate this uh, so let me play you a song that doc that Doc sang and uh, uh. As I was going down the road There I 
I met Wild Bill Jones He was walking and a talking True lover's side Yet how to leave her alone Sad young man My age is 21 Too old to be controlled I drew my pistol from my side I took that poor boy's soul I, I took poor boy's soul Dagger, he fell to the ground, gave one dying moan. Looked in the face of his darling true love, darling, you are left all alone. I've put twenty years in a penitentiary for killing old Wild Bill Jones. Oh, honey, babe, don't cry no more. Honey, babe, twenty years ain't long. I love that tune. Oh. Who's who originally is credited with that? Well, it's not a single author. It's a, it's a, who knows who created yeah. the version that I'm playing here is sort of a combination of Frank Prophet from Reese, North Carolina, who played a fretless venture like this. But the chorus here is different uh, than like the version you may have heard the Stanley Brothers do because Doc goes up to the four chord, that C chord with a. <laughs> That's only in his version that I've heard. And he he learned this song uh, growing up as a little boy. Okay. And he play, he first played it on a fretless banjo. He said it was a little uh, a cedar neck, a red cedar neck with a cigar box drum. And uh, it made kind of, kind of a thud, thud sound. Very nice. <laughs> well, we were talking about some about apprenticeships and, and teachers, and we just we just met, uh, you know, yesterday, but uh, you know, virtually. But you've actually been uh, one of my one of my uh, first teachers. We just found out um, from from a book, uh, one of my first banjo books I had. <laughs> you're, 
Um, yeah, all right. You're the first person in my life to mention this to me ever. <laughs> I still have this book. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, so it has Tony Trishka and Pete Wernick and. Oh, yeah. Uh, wonderful people. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Rosenbaum. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. This is a, a sort of a summary book, uh, a digest of different instruction books. And for some reason, the publisher. Um, uh, should I show the picture, David? Yeah, is that what I'm supposed to do? Okay. There we go. Uh, so. Uh, so that yeah, there it is. So <laughs> you misspelled my name. It's S T E P H E N, but that's okay. So that that that's uh oh, I got wrong. Uh, sorry. Uh, so that that that's the thing, and that was from the that picture was taken in 1977. Herb Wise, who owned uh, that, who was the publisher, he uh, he took that the 1977 Philadelphia Folk Festival. Wow. Uh, and that uh, that banjo is right right here. That, that, that here's here's that banjo. <laughs> what is that banjo? This is a, a number nine tubaphone banjo. Um, okay. Yeah, I had gotten Very it nice. at that January first, nineteen seventy seven. Began with a twang. That was the day I got this banjo. I I borrowed the money from a, a the late folk singer from Chicago, uh, Fred Holstein. He lent it to me and. I paid him back and uh, and got this banjo and then uh, and from what a, year was that made um, that banjo? Well, the serial number would put it around nineteen nineteen, and uh, the uh, and I got this from a tool and die maker uh, from Crystal Lake, Illinois. Yeah. Wow. Well, are you, you going to play something on it later? I do. I do plan to. Uh, okay. Yeah, but I, I, but based on the, uh, well, well, do you want me to play something on it now? Uh, we'll I'm, get to it. Yeah, oh, we'll get to oh, it. Okay, okay, I'm glad to. But um, why don't we? So, so, you, kind of moving through your your you know your history. Um, well, we, in the late '70s, you created a, a one man show called Banjo Dancing. That was, yes. Uh, yes. You know, very important and very successful for yourself. Um, uh, do, can you tell us about this a little bit? Yes, uh, thank you for asking. Well, uh, in 1975 was uh, when it, it, it actually began. It was a suge suggested to me by Ray Nordstrand, the late Ray Nordstrand, who was the president of WFMT Radio in Chicago, uh, its fine arts station. That's where Studs Terkel worked. And uh, Ray was also the um, uh, uh, publisher of Chicago Magazine. And we were doing a benefit at Second City, which is that improvisational yeah. comedy yeah. troupe. Yeah, and uh, I played at that. And I was doing these recitations to music, and it. And that night, uh, we, Ray and I went out um, dinner or something, and, and he said, "You know, you ought to you ought to do a one man show, a la you know Hal Holbrook." And so that was 1975, and then I kept uh, working towards that goal. And in 1978, I went back to Ray and said, "I think I have enough material for a one man show," and I I asked him, "Where do you suggest I?" You know, bring. I had a couple reviews and um, from Melody Maker, New York Times, and a couple other places, that, and Variety. Yeah, and uh, and uh, he said, "Well, try the Body Politic Theater, which was uh, Chicago's first off-loop theater." So it was sort of a um, and and an, willing to take chances on an unknown. And and so I was booked for uh, May uh, nineteen seventy nine at that theater for uh, uh, just a few weeks, uh, four weekends, and and then. Like Cinderella, I mean, my life changed overnight. Is what happened. 
And so banjo dancing ran, and I also did a second show called On the Way Home, all together about nearly 20 years of constant performing with it and and played a, a number of places throughout the United States and Canada. And uh, um, I don't know, I'd say like a million people went. Wow. So, yeah. Oh. So it was a w wonderful experience and n never telephoned in the show, you know, just I was always really tried to give it, but I could. I, I can believe that. And then, and then, and then your most recent recording was um, called a storyteller's story sources of banjo dancing. Uh, yes. marked, the, marked the anniversary of the show, didn't it? That marked the 40th anniversary of the show. Uh, uh, yeah. Here's the, here's the, the cover. This came out just in uh, 2019. Uh, and uh, it has a, a 44 page booklet in it. And, and I talk about sort of the larger traditions that were at play uh, within Banjo Dad. The traditions I wasn't even aware of really what started the show of, of, of uh, you know, oration and elocution and uh, let alone music and theater and uh, literature. Uh, a storyteller's story is uh, was a memoir um, written um, by Sherwood Anderson about his, and he's talking about his experiences in Chicago. And I sort of moved from there into these larger traditions that were uh, very much uh, long in existence, including um, these verbal ones that were at the heart of banjo dancing, these comic boasts and noisy language that uh, constituted really what became uh, developed into the larger uh, show, banjo, into my larger show. In other words, okay, Fleming told me, if you're going to play the Badger, you're going to have to get on stage because you're going to forget 50% of what, what you know. You're not, you're, it's going to just disappear. You're going to be so nervous. So, all right. So there was a little club, smoky place near the old town school that would meet after, the, after classes on Thursday nights. So it's called the Saddle Club. Okay, and people would play there. And people, tr tr musicians were traveling through Chicago to perform at you know real nightclubs where they get could pay would play there as well. Students in the school would get on stage there. So the first night, Fleming introduces me. I play three fast banjo tunes, and each tune successively, the audience is drifting into their own conversations. It was clearly uh, well intended, but it wasn't really connecting. But the following week, he said, "You got to get back out there." Uh, I had read a oration, a mock oration by an Arkansas legislator who's yelling, the man who would change the name of Arkansas as the original iron-jawed, brass-mounted, copper-bellied corpse maker from the wilds of the Ozarks, sired by a hurricane half-brother to the cholera, nearly related to the smallpox on his mother's side. He is the man they call sudden death and general desolation. Okay, so I'm reading that. I couldn't have memorized, and it goes a lot longer than that. So I was reading it in one hand, playing the banjo in the other, and the place listened. It went up for grabs. And uh, so that that's that's the seed of banjo dancing there. And the truth is, there were stories like this that have been occurring oh, since since the, probably the late uh, 18th century. But by 1830, uh, people are writing in this sort of native vein. Um, uh, there was a, a play written by him and by uh, James Kirk Paulding was his name. And uh, and it was a sort of a play, it was um, a parody of Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett was a real life 
person. He was, you know, Congress, twice congressman from Tennessee, but he also was a, a fictional product even in the time of his life. And, and so um, Paulding had created this character named Nim Colonel Nimrod Wildfire. And in it, he said, yeah, I'm the yellow flower of the forest. And I'm all I'm half horse, half alligator, a touch of the earthquake. Uh, and uh, I, I'm all brimstone, but the head and that's Aquafortis. And I've got the prettiest sister, fastest horse, ugliest dog in the district and can outrun, out jump, throw down, drag out and whip any man in all cane tuck. And so stuff like that is going on. And, and so I was so I wasn't I was learning about that kind of comic literature. And at the same time, I had always loved those talking songs, those talking blues songs like Book of White had done. And there was talking banjo songs, too, that Bascom Lunsford had recorded for the Library of Congress. And I pointed to that Library of Congress. Record. I had heard that there. He had, uh, um, one song he did, it was a talking song. Uh, I, I guess the folklorist term for that is a cantafable, a, a talking tale, um, that uh, was... Uh, Occupied two sides of a 78 RPM record, which to me was mystifying. The fact that one song is on two entire sides of a record, oh, yeah. uh, right? And and and, uh, and and there was you know and you know Bo Diddley when he did you know uh, uh, Who Do You Love? He's got you know uh, these comic epithets, uh, you know uh, Cobra Snake for a necktie. That's the same tradition as that stuff with the man who changed the name of Arkansas. It's the same kind of exaggeration in a different cultural setting. So I was aware then also in the church in the black church. There's a great flow between talking and singing that occurs in services and there's punctuated by music. So I, I was aware of those traditions and loved them very much, completely unaware at the time, which I write about in the notes to uh, Storyteller Story, that there was you know, genteel traditions uh, and, um, that reading was taught in America, you know, from those blueback spellers and all that sort of thing by reading aloud. And uh, women were finding jobs in elocution departments uh, by mid 19th century. And there was all kinds of women composers who were using spoken word with music. So there's a, there's a whole lot of precedents for this that were there that, um, th that this was tapping into. And, and I, I didn't know it, uh, but have you know, come to know it. I wouldn't. I don't want to put you on the spot, but could, would you be able to do any of the spoken word? Well, no, I, I think I, I think I just did in a sense, but I, they, they take a long time. So what I, I was thinking, okay. I knew you'd ask that. So yeah, I yeah. thought what I could do is one of the most pr pleasant moments in banjo dancing or at, or on the way home was when I didn't talk at all and I just played. And now I'll play that banjo that we were just talking about, and I'll play Perfect. it that I played in the show. Is that? Uh, yeah, that'd be perfect.
What was that tune? What was the name of that tune? And what was the tune that you're in as well? Spanish Fandango. Spanish Fandango. I'm in a wide open C tuning, but this is tuned low. I just didn't tune it up to pitch. Uh, I have it tuned low because I, I, I use the Spanish to sing a lot of songs that I pitch down in E for my voice for other things. And I just didn't bring it up to a full C pitch. But I, uh, I've never actually done it tuned low like that until just now. But, I, but that's what that... Uh, piece was and that comes from the playing of uh pete Steele, um who's um the one banjo song in my book actually uh, I, I do another piece of his i write about in the book the book the hardcover edition of the book has a cd in the back and you can hear him playing a recording he made in 1938 at his home of uh the coal creek march which is a i think a variation actually uh, on the spanish fandango Wow. Although it's in a different tuning yet again, and but he played both, and uh, his daughter said her favorite tune of her father's what was the Spanish Fandango, and then she gave me his banjo, and I have it, and I'm going to give it to the Smithsonian before I leave wow. this trail mortal coil because Pete Steele's banjo deserves to be right next to Libba Cotton's guitar and Tommy Gerald's fiddle and Wade Ward's banjo. That's where it belongs. And it still has his strings on it. His DNA is still in it. And wow. uh, uh, his daughter and his grandson were so kind. And um, so uh, uh, that's something about where this tune comes from. The two, this Spanish Randango goes into print as early as 1838 in, in America. And, um, and there's this, you know, innumerable versions of it because it, it in a sense doesn't have a melody it, it has you it's loose enough that people would create variations on it so i read all these different pieces of sheet music from prior to uh advent of recorded sound these 40 different pieces are all different but it's all around the same theme because everybody is bringing their own to it like what we started talking about at the very beginning of our hour and uh and it allows for that kind of variation and uh and for some people, though, the Spanish Fandango, those who are trying to elevate the band show, it was always oh, a music. One person wrote about it back in the 19th century as a musical atrocity. The, uh, the <laughs> Why? Banjo, Why? Well, they, they, they said they, the musical equivalent of chopsticks. It, I mean, they just thought it was so simple. Of course, the, the great thing about it being simple, the reason why it was so popular is that you could be a relatively inexperienced novice player and you'd sound really pretty good uh, with the open tuning and the two chords. And, and, and you could, you know... Uh, earn the approbation of your friends with it so it, the wonder it was popular but yeah that's for when the banjo was the most popular instrument in in, in america at the time it's it's the 19th century is it's the electric guitar the 19th century is uh way trubsell has written in his uh, thesis yeah yeah he's right too uh yeah <laughs> that's cool <laughs> Um, one of our one of our um, viewers, Dan Mazer. Um, I don't know oh, if you know Dan. I do. Yeah, he he says he saw banjo dancing with his parents at the old vat room, and yes, he did. Once, <laughs> you, and that you once gave him a dollar when you were busking, and uh, and then gave he him and his a ex gave him a ride, gave you a ride home. Well, uh, well, I hope I gave him more than that. He, he's, uh, he, you know, he's out in California now, I believe. And, yes. uh, and uh, yeah, I just wish Dan the best. Uh, and, and I know that he continues to play and, 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 and he's worth listening to. And uh, he's utterly committed to the instrument. 
And uh, Dan, I wish you well. Oh. And we have another we have another viewer. Jerry G says, "I met Stephen at Midwest Banjo Camp. So impressive! There's a world beyond tablature. His books are humorous, thoughtful, and a magnificent ride through folk tune history." Well, I know, Jerry, you're very sweet. Uh, thank you so much. Well, <laughs> learning this music is more than 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 tablature, and and you know, tablature is a very helpful representation, no question about it. But uh, you know, written uh, notation is helpful too because if time values are better expressed than it, but the truth is w w one wants to, you know, feel the sweaty hand of the preacher on your shoulder. You know, I, I think that's how it really goes. And uh, uh, and and so the, the personal contact with it has been everything for me. And I uh, I think that's what Jerry's talking about. I, I uh, And I appreciate it though, Jerry. Thank you. Yeah, but yeah, that's 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 so true. You really, you know, books and and educational material are are fantastic tools. But uh, but um, yeah, you really need to get in there and learn from from the sources too at the same time and use your ears. I mean, pe people respond to the sounds of their time. So your band is is definitely has a different level of modernity than the kind of things that I'm, uh, and that's not a value judgment at all, David. It's just it's yeah. just an awareness of who who people are listening to and what are, are they absorbing, and, and and it's different. And and of course, it is different in every generation. I've, a lot of what I've been thinking about lately has to do with the sort of what was the popular music for people, you know, who like I knew Sid Harkreader a little bit. I visited him. He was Uncle Dave Macon's uh, first accompanist, uh, and Sid was the first um, fiddler, uh, a full-time fiddler in Nashville, he told me, uh, back on WDAD, before the Grand Ole Opry, before WSM, and what he told me that he and um, his partner, Adi McWinders, who, who uh, played with Jimmy Rogers, they would, they would, they were on the RKO vaudeville circuit, fiddle and so and and they uh, and they would challenge the audience to name a tune and they would play it you know in this uh, middle tennessee style that they have but it was this you know great uh, uh they were like walking fake books and they were proud of it and when i visited uh sid hark reader in um uh, 1979, I believe it was it. He, uh, he he just played one tune after another. One, it was in B flat, and then you're in C, and then you're in G, then you're in A. And there was no time to put on a capo. Just just grab a hold of that banjo and follow it. And and uh, and, th and that I imagine is how his shows were. And he was you know living in an old folks' home in in Nashville at the time. And it was just a thrilling experience to to try to imagine what the world was like in his time. And I. I remember uh, Carl Martin of Martin Bogan and the Armstrongs. He too, this is a black string band. He, 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 and Ted Bogan. They were and and uh, they were walking fake books too. And they would go. They talked about in that movie, wonderful movie Terry Sugoff made uh, called Louie Bluey. They talked about pulling doors, and pulling doors meant that they were going into these different ethnic uh, bars pulling the door open and figuring out what to play, you know, so, and they, you know, he had his, he had his, he had his Tennessee Italian and he had, so he was playing tunes or songs from these different cultures that, that would fit and appeal to the people in that bar and stuff. This, what a, what a rich experience. And so I've been thinking about what, what is the popular music of that time that gets translated into vernacular music terms because they're not playing it as pop music. I mean, that, that's, they're not playing as jazz musicians. You know, I did play with Joe Venuti. <laughs> cool, cool. Oh, oh, unbelievable. 
Unbelievable. Yeah, that's, that's, it was all cool. art. I was taller than he, and, and his fiddle was here, and I, I was right above him. We played John Henry together, and, and I was clogged dancing, and, and uh, we were in a jazz club. It's connected to New York. And Dave, Dave McKenna was on the piano, and, and Joe pointed at my feet with his uh, bow and laughed. And he said the place was an upholstered sewer. That's how he described the joint. That we were. <laughs> uh, 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 he had a wonderful sense of humor. He was a wonderful man. And I, 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 I remember when he passed away, I just wept. I, 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 he was in Chicago or going to be playing in Chicago that night. That happened. Mm. Yeah, uh, he, he was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It was all have, music that was pouring out of him. Um, Jerry G is asking asking about the McGee brothers. He's, he's, oh. he's saying, tell us tell us a little about the McGee brothers. I'm not familiar. Oh, I love. Oh, well, Sam and Kirk McGee. Oh my goodness, yes. Well, I visited uh, Kirk. Uh, uh, he he in 1981. He uh, he was they were okay. Sam McGee was the first person to record uh, flat top guitar instrumentals in country music. Okay, so that uh, that's he Sam McGee took over from Sid Harkreader in accompanying Uncle Dave Macon in the mid twenties, and and then his younger brother. So uh, uh, Kirk was born eighteen ninety nine. The two of them are together and recording with Uncle Dave by nineteen twenty six, twenty seven or so, and um, and they also had their own career and a distinctive sound, and. Uh, I need to play you something from that. Uh, I will. Uh, the uh, uh, and 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 they also then in beginning around 1931 they started playing on the air with a uh, uh, fiddler Arthur Smith and that they, that was very popular. Uh, people all over the southeast and beyond listened to them. And then they had their own career. And when I met Kirk, he was the oldest living performer, uh, consistently a performer on on the Grand Ole Opry. He, he'd been on, you know, nearly 60 years. Ago. And, uh, and uh, w remarkably musical uh, and uh, a great diversity of material. I mean, he played anything from uh, Swanee River to to Danny Boy, to uh, old time tunes, to you know his mother's Civil War ballads, and his father was a uh, competed in the Henry Ford Fiddle Championships in nineteen mid nineteen twenties. Came in just uh, almost didn't win, but came in right behind him. So their father John was a, a fiddler. So Sam and Kirk McGee were formidable and and still uh, very much uh, worth worth remembering. Here's a, one. Uh, I didn't know we were going to talk about them, but gee. Uh, here, here's one of their records, right, right, right here. There you go. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think about them all the time. Uh, yeah. Uh, just, just wonderful uh, players, and I, and I play a bunch of their pieces myself, or try to. Uh, if, if, uh, end, endlessly important to me. I, I, I guess I could try. This is the one's closest in tune. We have somebody yeah. asking for you to play something on the tubaphone number three, if if you can. Okay, I was going to play something on this Deering banjo because it's oh, all courteous. It. There I, we go. You were going to. Uh, the Deerings are wonderful people. I've known them since the early 1980s. Uh, 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 Janet and, and, and Greg's mother uh, came to banjo dancing. And Janet was doing a survey of all the banjo players in America. And she was going everywhere and doing real. Uh, you know, she was surveying the field and getting to know everybody who's out there uh professionally speaking mm -hmm. and uh and then uh that was 1983 and then 1984 greg came out and stayed over and uh 
And he, it, it was a tubophobe number three that I had, and he studied that. And he said, I want to make a banjo that sounds like that. I was so complimented. And then eventually he did. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and this is a banjo that I uh, got uh, purchased from them in 2001. And uh, what model is that? I can't see. Uh, oh, that's, uh, well, I, it's, there, it's your. Tubaphone, the fake is I think you call number it. two. Yep. Yes, and uh, I was going to play uh, something. Um, I was going to do it. Well, first, let me do something from Hobart Smith. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's two. It was the patter roller, and I put in a little bit of chinka pin pie. Uh, also, uh -huh. Hobart Smith on it. Hobart Smith stayed with my teacher Fleming in 1963, and uh, and then uh, he uh, Fleming made the most extensive body of tapes of Hobart ever done, and that's uh, and I put and he handed me those tapes before he passed away. It said, "Do something with these." So, in 2005, I finished that project and. It's for Smithsonian called In Sacred Trust, uh, the 1963 Fleming Brown tapes. And I wrote a, an 88-page uh, uh, book, booklet with it and, um, and so forth. And, and uh, it was at that time, uh, this gets us back to the jeerings, uh, that, um, that I asked Janet and Smithsonian, we, did, we put Hobart on the cover and it was two issues in a row about that included material about Hobart and this release in Banjo Newsletter. And I asked Janet and asked Smithsonian if we could, since Hobart played uh, at that time in Chicago, a Vega Wonder banjo. And since you guys had just acquired and were making Vega Wonders, I asked Janet, who was very kind about this, if we could do an ad together. And so I wrote the copy. It's the only time in my life I ever wrote an ad. And so it's Hobart Smith is Vega Wonder and, you know, just, just wonderful. And uh, so, so this is a combined uh, a Deering and Smithsonian ad. It ran for two, week, uh, two months in a row. 
uh, a whole page in Bantam Newsletter. So thank you very much, um, uh, Janet Deering and Greg Deering. And so I, I, I wanted to, I just, well, they, they, I appreciate that, that, that opportunity. Now, with the question was that other, yes, here we go. That number three, tuba This phone. is the number three, the Vega number three. Yeah, yeah. Tuning are you going to? I'll go to the favorite tuning that uh, that uh, Kirk McGee and Sam McGee used, which was standard C tuning. When, when you, you say, say standard, standard C, C tuning, tuning, you mean you're dropping the fourth string down to a C? Yes, a standard C is not the double C, which is. This is uh, this is what is used in, in, in the classic style banjo playing, and in the minstrel uh, primers in the 19th century, it was tuned lower pitch-wise, but the purport relationship of the strings to each other were the same as as occurs here. So as early as the 1840s and stuff, we we know this banjo that. That set of relationships between the strings is in, is present and, and in, in in action. of uh, a little bit of a uh, pig ankle rag there nice. and uh uh yeah the chord goes i i didn't plan on playing that but that's from kirk mcgee i learned that from him but it went some and his brother sampled it and this tune is also gets recreated gus cannon played it that's a Madison Street rag. And in his lyrics, he's talking about playing, being a street performer. He's talking about playing music on the street when he's playing this. 
And he talks at one point in the piece about the man with the headache stick. You know who the man with the headache stick is, David? No. That's a, that's a cop with a billy club. A headache stick. And that's what that's what uh, a street singer knows about, you know. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so that's a little bit of Kirk McGee. Um, I, I sure. I, anyway, uh, that, I didn't plan on it, but there you go. Uh, yeah, and, that's and, awesome. And and if you want to, you know, using the picks on, on in his style, which he would he would have worn picks when he 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 did this. I mean, he did wear picks when he did it. As okay. did Sam. Sam said, well, playing without picks on, he says, like walking in gravel. Uh, it's like walking bare feet, walking in gravel in your bare feet, you know. So it's just. I could go on, but that was the beginning of the Memphis blues. But but anyway, um, you get the idea. He, he they got more tone out of it. And the tune that Sam first played on the guitar for uh, for that first full country music recording uh, of flat top guitar was the Buck Panthers choice. I was just beginning there a little bit uh, to sketch out. And when I played it on the banjo for Kirk, he had never, he had never played on the banjo. And he thought it was okay. And it was like, I, I felt so good that he felt that way. Uh, but it was on the guitar that Sam played. Uh, uh, for, uh, the Buck Panthers on the flip side of that record was another instrumental he had learned as a, as a boy from a doctor in town named Dr. John Merritt. And it was a tune called the Franklin Blues. They lived outside Franklin, Tennessee. And it was a small little ragtime kind of movements in it. Uh, it wasn't a blues at all. Uh, but uh, also had segment parts. And and he would, um, Sam and, and Kirk would, you know, di put different parts in, uh, in at different times. Um, it was memorized. They could memorize it that way and have a, a, a piece of it. It was modular, really. Wow. Yeah. Well, we're getting up towards the top oh. of the hour. Um, we want to start start to wrap up. I want. There's a lot of people. Um, a lot of people are really happy to see you. Um, oh. A lot of people that have known you for a while. I think that you know. Oh. There's Susan White who said oh, you've really? seen oh. dancing at least a dozen times. Oh yeah, um, all suffering. She, oh, that's wonderful that she did said hello. Oh, how nice. I've known Susan. Susan was around. Susan was around when that pic around the time that that picture, that booklet, uh, that book was taken. She was around there. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. She she lived in the village. Yeah, yeah. And that uh, yeah, uh, that picture from the instruction book that you remember. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, yeah. And I'd, and I'd like to bring in Jamie Laddie here to see if we have more um, more 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 questions on the chat. We, it's been a lot more compliments and um, just general thanks for being here more than it has oh. been uh, questions specific. But I would open up uh, to the chat rooms, both of them right now, if, if anybody wants to uh, drop anything in before we, uh, before we start wrapping up. I know that uh, Jonas said, Steve, they used to host a uh, camp up in Estes Park, and that's where my wife and I met him. Oh, well, yes, I, I was uh, <clears throat> a director of the American Roots Music Program for five years. Uh, 
uh, and it, it uh, was part of the uh, Rocky Ridge Music Center in Estes Park above it, and right near the entrance to Rocky Mountain National Park. And we uh, this ran from uh, 2015, 2019, all five years. And it was a wonderful experience. And um, and I, I I met some great people there, and we had a wonderful uh, ex- broad faculty. And it, I'm I'm not really a banjo chauvinist. I have to say, I really like a lot of instruments and a lot of music. And I, our program was always so it's multi multi various instruments, and um, and it was always a practical in the sense of showing people things to play and sing. But it was also historical. It was always bringing the two parts together, that practical and the historical. And uh, uh, we had uh, just a great, great richness to draw upon. Uh, and, and our faculty, uh, we, we had uh, all, all kinds of people from uh, Dick Weissman. Do you remember him? He's been around. Yeah. And, and, Harry, and Harry Tuft and, and uh, Peter Warnick taught, uh, one year. I mean, all kinds of just, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll forget people that I don't wish to. We had wonderful women teachers, uh, Peggy Browning from Old Town School in Chicago and and, and Matt Brown, the uh, fiddler uh, who uh has just moved to Kentucky this week, and as we just any all kinds of, we always had a live dance on Saturday nights, and the community could come. Uh, uh, we had a sort of lecture presentations, we had uh, workshops, we had. Uh, I, I will be forever touched by that experience and by the people who came. It was a, a great experience. Great, awesome. Yeah, you've li- you certainly lived a, an incredible life with what you do, right? You, you've met a lot of cool people. Um, a couple of questions related to, um, specifically with artists, uh, old and new. So John over, he's in the other chat room. He's not in the one we, we were looking at, but um, says, hi, Stephen, enjoying this experience. Uh, I'm just down the I-95 in Richmond as a beginning player. I find myself leaning toward old time claw hammer style. And I notice mm-hmm. you're integrating kind of picking and claw hammer, which is very intriguing to me. And he asks, what kind of artists or tunes should I look to learn to play that incorporate both styles, in your well, opinion? Uh, well, uh, well, Uncle Dave Macon did both. Uh, mm. uh, Pete Steele played in variety of styles. He wouldn't mix them necessarily in the same tune. But Uncle Dave would mix uh, picking and frailing in the same piece. Uh, Doc Hopkins would do that, too. Uh, so... Uh, I just played a number of right-hand styles because it was required really in doing a one-man show to have as many sounds as possible. Uh, the audience, you know, all 50 banjo players were ever going to go to banjo dancing went, but for everybody else, the banjo was just sort of an undifferentiated instrument, but, but their ears could still make out differences in things and dynamics, whether they're aware of whatever technique or precedence. I'm, that's, not, that's not requisite. The, the point is, is that I had to have that uh, variety of two-finger and three-finger and up-picking and, um, a- as well as down-picking. And, and, uh, and there's, there's as, again, there's just a lot of to lean on for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's different kinds of picking up with two fingers uh, that, you, uh, that, that one can adventure as well as uh, down-picking. Um, I, I, uh, uh, a piece. I wonder what I should do. Um, uh, 
And that's that's just trailing. That's just down picking. And I guess I could finger pick it for you now. Or I, maybe we're out of time. I don't know. Uh, as long as you've got time, we've got, we got a few more minutes. I've got a couple more questions for you, too. Are you, are you good on time, Stephen? Well, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Excellent. That's what we like to hear. Okay. Um, okay. So I, I'm not going to mix them all in this. I'm doing separate tunes, I think. And I, then I'll, after we get done, I'll think of the right tune that I should have played for that person at I-95. And I just wish I could have thought of it then. But um, so, I mean... Girl. Uh, and I'm just trying to do sort of a three finger picking of it. But if you were to play it like this, here. absolutely yeah. delightful oh thanks um, and that comes into playing of uh, well the fiddling of henry reed from glenlin virginia and the sort of he played in a cape put up but anyway that's a couple different approaches there of to things uh, that's sort of a, oh kind of a proto bluegrass three finger i was leading with the index finger instead of the thumb uh but uh, that there's still another still all these different uh, possibilities. Uh, this is a music of renewal. That's uh, a story of renewal in folklore and in, within it, the music that we're all 
engaged in and, and all these different, again, I'll go back to the same point of common possessions and these individual contributions that people are making and, and so have at it, you know, it's just a lot. <laughs> I love it. Uh, there was one other question from Dan Mazer again, because we love Dan. Oh, okay. Oh, um, and we won't we won't bring it back up. Uh, so he says, um, Stephen is so knowledgeable. Actually, this is a two part question. So we'll start with the first part. Stephen is so knowledgeable about traditional music, but I'd love to hear his take on innovators like Eddie Adcock, Bela Fleck, and even more modern innovators like Noam Bukelny. Um Care oh. to care to speak? Well, I'm very yes. Uh, uh, yes uh, <laughs> okay, Noam. The first album that Noam ever got up. In music, yeah, from what I'm told, his teacher was uh, Mark Dvorak at the Old Town School. And Mark lent him this, this record that I made of my teacher flooding down. And it got it in his hands a week or so before he died. And the first song on this record is Once I Had the Old Band Show. And it's the, so this is the first album I ever produced and, and got this done. And Tommy did a fantastic job with that song. And now Noam has taken it from this recording right. and then his own wonderful invention on this on song. Solo, that, on the solo the, album, Fanta album, yeah. So that's the route uh, that this, this takes. And I, so of course, I think it's terrific. Uh, I've never met him, but I, 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 I've, as for Eddie Adcock, I, I just think he's genius. I mean, he, I first saw him around 1971. He was just starting second generation then. And uh, I had seen, you know, I listened to, I, I saw, uh, uh, you know, Don Reno uh, uh, in, in that year, too. And, and I, you know, I was really fascinated and, uh, uh, by all the things he did. But when we did the Tennessee Banjo Institute in 1990, uh, here, uh, this, is, this is appropriate since we're sort of closing up. So this is the Tennessee Banjo Institute in, in 1990. And there's a picture. In, if you go up close somehow, you'll see me sitting next to Janet Deering in this picture. And Eddie Adcock is here, too. And it struck me that, that, that he, he, he was an overwhelmingly uh, musical uh, individual for, for which there were no boundaries. So I, I, uh, all I could do is, you know... Give thanks that I, I, you know, my, so I, so I, I'm into innovators for goodness sake, like all, all the folks that, that Dan mentioned and, 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 and respect them mightily. Uh, I, I don't really have much to add to that. I, I do, I do, I actually play a little bit of uh, a melodic uh, banjo, uh, but we'll get to that. The next, if you ever have me back, uh, I, I do, I have learned some of that. I, I practice, it's hard for me and so it's 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 good to jethro burns who was a brilliant musician the mandolin player he told me said steve practice what you don't play well okay so 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 that's so i i i do i do practice uh melodic banjo and which is 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 a, a challenge for me but i but i i keep working at it so um uh i don't know what, how else to uh, tie that up but uh jethro was words should speak for for all of us who who play the music and and are in, uh, who largely who listen to the to your uh, to your weekly uh, uh, programs, very 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 you know poignant words there yeah definitely. He was a wonderful man, and boy did he know show business, Jethro. He was just great. 
<laughs> he, he vetted everywhere. Well, Stephen, it's been uh, it's been a real, real pleasure today, uh, and and chatting with you yesterday for a while. I know you got to sit in with uh, with Janet yesterday as well, and, and catch up a little bit, which was which was really cool. And um, uh, we'll have to have you on again soon. Um, but oh, we're wrapping, wrapping up past the hour. So, um, is there any kind of final? You know, words of wisdom or, or anything you want to share before we uh, before we part ways for the day? Oh well, I think I I thought I did that when I was talking about renewal, uh, but uh, uh, I uh, I could probably find something here about sort of the irrepressible flow of creativity in American music. But I I, I think what the work that you do by talking with all these different musicians you do every week attest to that and demonstrates that to all of us in palpable terms so so i appreciate being part of this and and and, I, and that all my friends and all these wonderful people who wrote to you i have no idea who, who and what but i am grateful for those friendships and knowing them there's a, there's a lot of people on here today that, that really appreciate you and, and and everything you've done and contributed and still contribute uh to the wonderful world of traditional traditional music it's it's uh yeah, you should be up there with the White House and the inaugural parade. So oh, well, it is a well-deserved statement, I think. Um, for anybody wanting to find out more about Stephen, um, there, there is several links in the description on YouTube and Facebook um, that we put in earlier. There is the main site um, that he, he wanted this to, to pitch was, uh, is it Tam Tamalevich? Oh, David Tamalevich, yes. He's a representative. And, uh, and, and then uh, I also put you... I gave you a link and I'm grateful for you putting up for University of Illinois Press for the book and there's video there there's uh, Paul Wagner who received an Academy Award did a nine minute film about my book that came out in late uh, 2019 and also put on a link for the newest album for a story torch and there's also a video there that Tom Minty who owns Patuxent Records did and Dick Spotswood the great discographer is in that uh, short uh, film so I just thought it'd be fun that worth including and thank you for including all that absolutely those those yeah. links are in the description on on both youtube and facebook um oh, and then okay. if you visit uh, uh go to the booking roster at the top and steven is right there on the list and there's a there's a, a ton of links to previous articles and interviews and pictures and and other links out to different resources to find out more about steven and, and the work that he does so thank you uh for providing that um Thanks for having. Th thanks for, for being here. This has been a real pleasure. Um, just a quick reminder before we go. Next week's guest will be Bibi Bonas. Um, she's terrific, by the way. I I, I did a midnight camp with her a couple years ago. She's terrific. Just terrific from New Zealand. Yeah, yeah she yeah. is. She's she's yeah. awesome. She's awesome. And we have we are uh, making the the Deering Life shorts every week. So do stay tuned for those. Um, there'll be a series of short clips from each episode going up. Uh, hopefully within 24, 48 hours. Uh, of each episode um, and Jonathan is waiting in the wings ready to edit those so you can see him right there thank you so much uh, do you want to play us out real quick or oh, oh okay okay uh, sure uh, you don't have to I'm just no, giving you the option no, no, no. <laughs> convince me to play that's, that's not right, real well, hard I, to do. I didn't think I'd have to twist around too hard so thank you everybody and uh, we'll see you uh, next week